This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Research. Knowledge sharing on financial research. Hello to everyone. Welcome to this uh, Blue Research podcast. Uh, I'm very happy today uh, to be here with uh, Bastien Dru, uh, one of the leading economists uh, of uh, one of our subsidies in Amundi CPR. Uh, very happy to have this conversation that is going to be dedicated to uh, the second paper uh, of the series we have initiated on the day after. As I hope all the participants to this podcast uh, have read the first paper we published uh, by Pascal Blanquer, our Chief Investment Officer. In this first paper, uh, what Pascal has elaborated on is the idea that we are progressively going to enter uh, after this crisis or living with the consequences of this crisis into a new economic, financial and political regime. Uh, and what Pascal explains pretty well is that any change of financial regime in the economical history has been made possible by, let's say, intellectual victories or at least new intellectual consensus being established at global level between politicians, central bankers, academics. So in the second paper of our day after series that is entitled Learn the Rules Like a Pro So You Can Break Them Like an Artist, what we are exploring is the fact that some of the economic intellectual rules we were all living on in the pre-crisis regime have been shattered down by the crisis itself. And today, with Bastien, what we would like to explore a little more in details is how these rules, uh, again, on which we were all living on since, let's say, early 80s, how these rules have been put into cause very quickly uh, at a pace of time which I believe is completely unprecedented and in a way opening maybe the door to new intellectual battles or to a new intellectual regime on which we're going to live on. Um, so in the day after paper uh, that uh, we have published on this topic, uh, we have identified a few sets of rules. By definition, it's not exhaustive, but we focused on the main ones. And the very first one uh, on which uh, we have uh, drawn the attention is the fact that uh, since the 80s, uh, we were clearly living uh, on uh, a set of rules that was explaining that at the end of the day, what is absolutely critical uh, in running uh, public policies uh, is the magnitude of deficits uh, and the amount of public debt. And it's very interesting to see that even uh, at the moment of the great financial crisis, the words no matter it takes or at any cost, these kind of expressions that we've heard a lot since the beginning of the COVID crisis were not used at the time because there was a clear consciousness that the level of deficits post-crisis was an issue. It seems it's not an issue anymore in a way. Uh, and so, uh, Bastien, I would like you to comment on that first because we've seen that almost all governments uh, have launched unprecedented fiscal measures to support health systems, businesses, workers. Uh, and it seems that the question of debt sustainability 
is no longer on the table. No one uses the word austerity. No one uh, uses the word uh, serious, uh, being, about being about being serious, budgetary speaking. So what do you think uh, of that? Uh, and uh, can you uh, give us your thoughts on the fact that in a few days, all the rules uh, there have been broken, notably at European levels, uh, the rules uh, of the Maastricht Treaty? So, hi, that's true that uh, when we speak about uh, about Europe, uh, we have lived on, on the idea that it was impossible for countries to spend more. And uh, during, let's say, during the, the past decades, uh, deficits have been the enemy uh, in, in Europe. And this was a bit uh, paradoxical as uh, deficits were close to zero for the Eurozone when you take uh, the, the 19 countries together. And uh, deficits in Europe were much lower than in the US or in UK or, or in Japan. And uh, one of the reasons for this was... Uh, the orthodoxy and the applications of uh, the budget rules of the European treaties. And, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, we have a, a fiscal framework that's uh, rather complex. But basically, what, what, it, what it says is uh, that uh, it prevents uh, countries from running uh, large uh, deficits. Uh, in, uh, and uh, the core idea is that the fact that uh, countries are not allowed to, uh, to spend more than uh, 3% of GDP. I mean, deficits uh, have to be uh, lower than 3% of GDP. And what happened is in March, uh, the European Council has activated uh, what is called uh, the General Escape Clause. And this uh, basically means that uh, the European budget rules have been suspended. And that's, uh, that's a, a very big thing. Uh, this, this clause uh, had, had been uh, conceived uh, for a situation of uh, generalized crisis caused by a severe, severe economic downturn, reaching all the countries uh, simultaneously. And this is what happened with this uh, coronavirus, uh, coronavirus crisis. So, and what, what is, what has been very, uh, funny is the fact that, uh, you know, one country has been accused of not spending enough for, uh, I mean, uh, very, very often. That's, uh, that's Germany. And no, Germany is, uh, is spending much more than the other countries. And that's, uh, that's very, uh, impressive. So just let's take about, let's talk about, about Germany a, a bit. Germany has uh, unveiled a, a very massive package, uh, just speaking about a supplementary budget, uh, they announced uh, a bit more than 150 billion euros, that's uh, a bit more than uh, 5% of GDP, so that's uh, really uh, large, but on the top of that, uh, the German state is guaranteeing uh, more than uh, uh, f uh, 700 uh, euros of uh, corporation loans. So that's uh, very massive. That's uh, more than 20% uh, of GDP. And that's uh, very uh, paradoxical that uh, this country is accused of not spending enough is now spending much more than the others. So that's that's a, a very big change for, for Europe. And I'd say that uh, we also observed uh, a very big change also in, in the U.S., uh, you know, after the great uh, financial crisis, 
Uh, we had uh, a fiscal stimulus uh, launched by uh, Barack Obama uh, in February 2009, and the size of this uh, fiscal stimulus was uh, just uh, $780 billion. So uh, what has been done this year uh, in the U.S., just in terms of uh, relief measures, uh, I mean, the size is already above $2 trillion. So that's much more elevated. And we are speaking about uh, a fifth uh, phase of uh, fiscal relief uh, in, in the U.S. So uh, we could, I mean, uh, the result of this could be more, maybe uh, like uh, $4 trillion or $5 trillion uh, in terms of relief measures in the U.S., and uh, definitely, we don't have any more this question of, uh, uh, you know, fiscal, uh, I mean, uh, public debt sustainability. We are, nobody is talking about that uh, currently, contrary to what happened uh, after the great financial crisis. So the, the world has definitely changed uh, about this respect. Okay, no, thank you very much, uh, Bastien. Uh, I, I think what is uh, very impressive indeed, uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, is the fact that uh, very quickly, uh, again, all the rules that were applicable and that were considered as almost impossible uh, to be challenged uh, vanished very quickly. Uh, but uh, what is also interesting is that for the moment, uh, everybody has in its mind the fact that a solution will be needed to deal with the level uh, of public deficits uh, and public debt that is going to be accumulated uh, in the face of answering to the crisis. But it means for me two things. First, it's very important to pay attention to how the governments will and at which pace be in capacity to unplug the different mechanisms that has been, that have been put into place uh, because uh, it's going to be extremely painful for some economies when uh, the uh, systems that have been put into place to answer to the crisis will be removed and we all know that it will be needed at some point in time otherwise the level and the accumulations of debt and deficits that is the consequence of, uh, of it uh, will be uh, clearly uh, very difficult to, uh, to manage. That's the first element. Second element, uh, I'm personally convinced that we will have to see new ways or new forms to answer to the level of deficits uh, and debt uh, that have been accumulated. In a way, it's not possible to say that in Europe, for instance, we have turned off the Maastricht criteria for a period of time and that we're going to turn on them again uh, because they will be no longer applicable huh, to give an idea by for instance uh, the level uh, of debt vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, GDP uh, will be much higher uh, that was uh, in the stability and growth pact uh, after the crisis except Germany uh, will be uh, and, and some Nordic countries will be compliant uh, with, these, with these rules uh, and therefore uh, new things will have to emerge uh, new rules or new ways to address the level uh, of, uh, of debt. And that leads uh, probably to a conversation on a second type of rule uh, that uh, has been uh, broken uh, because of the crisis, which is uh, uh, the role of central banks. We're, we're going to come back afterwards to the role, uh, I would say, of public intervention. Uh, because uh, in a way, at the moment, as all the deficits and budgetary rules uh, have uh, exploded, uh, at the same time, 
uh, it's uh, the way central banks were acting that has been completely uh, put into cause with an, a very now blurred frontier between what is budgetary money, if you allow me the expression, and central bank money. The traditional role of central banks was already very much put into cause or the traditional uh, pure independent theory of central banks and the limits and their, the limits of their intervention was massively put into cause by the great uh, financial crisis. But now we have probably come one step further with almost a new objective for central bank that has emerged that was not part of their mandate before. Huh? Uh, so no, uh, no, not any question regarding inflation or financial stability. But central banks clearly now uh, are working on an agenda led by the preservation of economic capacities. Uh, and this is very impressive to see that the agenda of central banks has moved very quickly in that direction, particularly at the European level. And Sebastian, I would like you to comment on that. So how do you analyze the evolution, the implicit evolution of the mandates uh, of central bank, European central bank in particular? Uh, and therefore, uh, how do you believe that this new monetary theory that uh, is being invented on the ground will impact future market prices, allocation of resources and also transmission mechanisms? As you said, uh, nothing is explicit. Uh, there has been a very big announcement from uh, all the central banks. That's not only uh, the Fed or or VCB of the Bank of Japan. And uh, we have seen that, uh, for instance, uh, central banks uh, that never did, which never did uh, massive QE, are now uh, purchasing a lot of assets. I'm thinking about, for instance, the Bank of Canada. Also thinking about uh, the, the social banks uh, in Australia or, or New Zealand, and uh, they are now massively uh, purchasing uh, assets, and uh, that's also true uh, for uh, emerging uh, countries. Uh, what is um, very uh, striking is the fact that uh, just at the beginning of the year, uh, if you were reading the financial press, uh, financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, there were a lot of articles, uh, a lot of editorials saying that uh, central banks were running out of uh, ammunition. And, and no, this, uh, this idea has been completely destroyed uh, by, uh, by this corona crisis. Um, if you take the Fed, for instance, the Fed has already purchased more than uh, 1.7 trillion dollars of uh, treasury securities. When the CBO expect uh, the federal deficit to to, uh, to reach uh, 3.7 uh, trillion uh, this year, so it means that uh, the Fed has already absorbed almost half of this year's uh, deficit. So that's 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 very. Uh, uh, impressive, I said, uh, almost half of a vicious deficit. On the top of that, the Fed has set uh, many facilities, uh, the, the investment vehicles, uh, with the ability to purchase 
private uh, securities, uh, for instance, commercial papers, corporate bonds, ETFs, uh, so investment grade uh, corporate bonds, but also high yield uh, corporate bonds, uh, you know, also SME loans, securitizations, and um, and the, the Fed is also, uh, I mean, these facilities are also lending to uh, a lot of participants, market participants like the primary dealers, for instance, or money market funds uh, managers. So definitely, uh, we see that um, what uh, the social banks wants to do is to uh, to preserve the, the functioning of uh, uh, the credit market. And that's something very, very important that uh, they didn't used to do in, in the past. And so that's a very uh, fresh uh, development that we are uh, observing. Um, also in Europe, uh, we have seen a very, uh, a very big evolution. Uh, VCB has also made, uh, made a very big announcement with, um, of course, the pandemic emergency purchase program. That's uh, seven, uh, seven, um, 750 uh, billion euro, euros envelope of uh, asset purchase. And uh, when you add uh, this envelope to other programs, you see that VCB is going to uh, to purchase uh, 1.1 trillion euros of assets between March and, and December. They have also changed a lot of things, uh, I mean, in their uh, way of uh, purchasing assets. Uh, what they have shown uh, is, uh, of course, they say that they want to apply uh, the capital key, uh, capital key rules. That it means that uh, when the, the euro system is purchasing sovereign bonds, uh, it's uh, purchasing uh, 27% of German bonds, uh, 21% of uh, French bonds, uh, 18% of Italian bonds, etc., and so on and so on. And uh, what they have shown is uh, they have uh, shown a, a new flexibility uh, when applying these uh, capital key rules, and they, they have shown, they have explained explicitly that they want to avoid uh, financial uh, fragmentations. And again, central banks are showing that what they want to preserve is the functioning of, uh, of a credit market. So, for, so maybe that's not the same way, the same form as for uh, the Fed, but uh, we are, what, we have, well, what we are observing is the fact that definitely the functioning the, the global functioning of credit markets is definitely an objective uh, of, uh, of social banks. And all of these things is uh, also very important for uh, public debt sustainability because, uh, you know, uh, there have been some debates about the fact that uh, one portion of uh, public debt has to be cancelled uh, this uh, corona debt has to be cancelled uh, and uh, not to be reimbursed. But what we are, what we can think is that these uh, these assets will be uh, purchased for by these uh, central banks forever. What we have seen is uh, VCB has started its uh, QE programs in uh, 2015, and uh, VCB has never tried. To shrink uh, its uh, its balance sheet, the Fed has uh, tried at the end of uh, 2017, and what we have seen is uh, some problems uh, for the interbank uh, markets. And uh, definitely, I think that uh, the Fed 
will not will not try anytime soon to reduce its uh, balance sheet. So it means that all this public debt purchased by the central banks will remain at the balance sheet of uh, of the central banks, and that's uh, definitely a new development, and that's I think something definitive. Thank you very much, Bastien. What is indeed very interesting uh, in that debate is clearly that we see new objectives for central banks emerging. And in a way, you mentioned three new ones. First, uh, preservation of uh, economic uh, stability and economic capacities. This one is not totally new for a number of central banks that had, I would say, growth and level of employment as an objective per se, but still uh, it's quite new for a number of central banks in the world, notably the ECB. Second objective, which is in a way access to credit for corporates, which goes beyond the traditional objective of preserving the organization and the well-functioning of credit markets. And third, and maybe here I'm going to be a, a little provocative, uh, maybe we will see progressively central banks uh, have a new implicit objective, which will, which will be... Uh, to solve uh, the public debt problem, uh, because we will discuss probably that uh, in, in, a, in a paper to come and in a conversation to come. But at the end of the day, uh, to deal uh, with the level of debts and deficits we uh, are accumulating at the moment, either you need to pay them, which might be a little challenging, to say the least, in the economic context we're going to live in in the years to come, Either you need inflation to solve the debt problem, it was in a way the tool that was used post-World War II, but we know that at the moment there are some huge deflationary forces that are going to play at least in the short term. Or third, you have a new type of action of central banks that is completely in opposition to the traditional orthodox approach uh, of the central bank monetary function. Uh, maybe moving to a, a third a set of rules that has been massively uh, put into cause by the crisis. Uh, well, since the Washington consensus, uh, uh, there was, I would say, within the financial, economic, uh, global community, the principle that was to limit state in intervention the maximum possible. Uh, for instance, the level uh, of uh, public expenses vis-a-vis -vis GDP, uh, the highest it was, uh, the less, uh, I would say, an, an economy was considered as uh, efficient uh, in the past, uh, if I'm a, a little uh, caricature. Uh, here, um, what is interesting uh, is that uh, we've seen huge, huge public interventions by states in the context of this crisis. In a way, all the guarantee schemes that have been put into place, notably at European level, are some kind of, sorry for the big word, but nationalization or publicization uh, of private debt. Um, and at the moment, there is there seems to be an absolute consensus on the fact that state intervention should be extremely important. For instance, the taboo of uh, nationalization uh, of some sectors uh, is uh, has now fallen. Uh, and everybody seems uh, to approve, for instance, the fact that 
the different states are intervening, for instance, vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, airline or aircraft compare or aircraft companies, which is a little amusing, huh? because uh, if uh, you remember well, uh, we've lived in the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, on the idea that uh, privatization uh, of uh, public sectors uh, was uh, the key uh, of uh, effic efficient uh, economies. Uh, so clearly, uh, this is something that is put into cause because of the crisis, but maybe it's going to last. Uh, and we see now, uh, really, a new idea of really supporting massively the public intervention within the private uh, economy. So uh, I would like to, uh, you to, to elaborate on that uh, a little uh, and uh, maybe to give also the implication for corporates uh, and investors. So that's true that uh, markets are always the optimal way to organize uh, production has been uh, beaten up. And uh, this, uh, this crisis has shown that uh, public interventions are uh, desperately uh, needed for at least for so some segment. And as you mentioned, for some uh, companies and for some sectors like uh, airlines, uh, state support uh, will, will be vital. And uh, just uh, survival is at stake for, for, this, uh, for these companies. So in Europe, uh, as uh, we mentioned uh, previously uh, in our conversations, uh, not only uh, the budget rules have been uh, relaxed, but also uh, the, the rules about uh, state aid uh, have been relaxed and uh, governments can inject capital in struggling companies where it is forbidden in uh, normal times. Um, so that's um, we have uh, definitely uh, a bigger intervention of the countries, of governments uh, within companies and uh, one of the key impact of uh, this new uh, interventionism uh, is the fact that uh, governments can, uh, I mean, uh, are, in, are able to impose new regulations and new norms to uh, to companies. And uh, we can uh, expect this to have uh, an impact on uh, ESG um, investing. So the thing is... Um, all, uh, I mean, the, the shape of the, uh, of the public interventions will be very different uh, according to the countries. Uh, it will be different, uh, in, uh, in each country. But just look at, uh, you know, the, the help, uh, brought by, by countries. For instance, in, in a country like Denmark, the, the government does not want, uh, to help companies with, uh, you know, the headquarters, um, located in, uh, tax havens. So that's definitely a way, uh, on which, uh, the state is trying to, um, to change, uh, I mean, the, the way companies uh, operate. And uh, you have so uh, you have uh, this case in Denmark. In the US, you have you have something else. Uh, I mean, the, the small companies uh, receiving help from uh, from the state cannot raise uh, the highest uh, salaries. So that's uh, also a way to uh, to fight uh, the rise of uh, income uh, inequalities. You know that uh, income inequalities have risen a lot in in the US. And, uh, that's written in, um, in the law that, uh, companies receiving, uh, loans from the states, they, they just cannot raise, uh, the highest uh, salaries. So we see that 
during uh, this crisis, uh, during this crisis, uh, I mean the public interventions uh, already try to uh, to change the way corporations operate, and that's I would say maybe just the first phase because we are only talking about relief measures. Then, in a second phase, we'll have the stimulus measures. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the countries will try to, um, uh, to uh, launch uh, big spending projects. And maybe uh, within these uh, big uh, spending projects, they will try to, um, uh, to, uh, to, to, to change a bit more the way companies operate. Maybe uh, uh, thinking about uh, climate change, how to fight cl climate change, or uh, or the governments could could uh, could, uh, could change uh, uh, the, the the way companies fight uh, climate change. So definitely, uh, we can have an impact on uh, on ESG investing. Uh, we, we can see uh, this. Uh, I mean, in the coming months and maybe already uh, in the market. No, thank you very much, uh, Bastien. I think also um, something you, you mentioned uh, that is uh, important. Uh, by definition, uh, the question of public intervention uh, was being considered already very differently depending uh, on the countries. For sure, uh, it's uh, not the same uh, to consider the question from a U.S. perspective or from a European, European perspective. What I think is very interesting uh, in uh, what has happened uh, since the beginning of the crisis uh, is that uh, the massive public intervention will clearly have huge political consequences, meaning that it's going to legitimate uh, the arguments and the positioning of a number of parties, movements, that were calling for more public intervention since a number of years, uh, and that were opposed the there is no alternative type of policy. Uh, and I strongly believe uh, that it's going to be much more complicated to avoid the debate on the role of the public sector within the economy after this crisis, and that we will see more and more pressure for greater implications of state, not only for sovereignty reasons on some industries, but more generally speaking, yeah, uh, for, uh, I would say, uh, the organization of the economies. So I'm not saying that we're going to come back uh, to a form of uh, planification uh, that was, uh, in a way, the approach in a number of countries in the 60s or the 70s. Uh, but clearly, uh, I strongly believe that this crisis will make more legitimate the type of, I would say, approach, uh, approaches of the economy uh, incorporating uh, more public intervention. Uh, and this will, this will have uh, very strong consequences uh, on the political uh, equilibriums. Uh, in, in a way, you see that already, for instance, uh, in the UK, huh, uh, where uh, Boris Johnson uh, is uh, leading a policy uh, that on the social or public perspective side uh, was is very much in line uh, with uh, what some of the things uh, that the Labour Party was requesting uh, years ago. So I, I think the impact uh, of this evolution of the role of the public and of the state within uh, the economy uh, on uh, the different political agendas because of the crisis 
uh, is really something uh, to be considered uh, carefully uh, because this might have uh, very, very strong implications. Maybe the last set of rules uh, that uh, we've um, focused our attention on uh, in this paper uh, is, uh, I would say, a very uh, traditional one, uh, which is uh, the consideration that uh, free trade uh, and optimization of value chains uh, are the most efficient way to allocate global resources. I think this set of rules uh, on which we were living clearly and that was uh, uh, the basis uh, of uh, the third wave of globalization uh, since the 80s uh, was already theoretically relatively strongly put into cause before the crisis, notably due to the rise uh, of the uh, environmental challenges and their integration and their progressive integration uh, within uh, the economic theory. Uh, but here, clearly, it seems quite obvious that the idea that global growth needs global trade or will rely on global trade in the future is massively put into cause. And I think this has, of course, uh, very strong implications for market participants because it's not only global trade that seems to be uh, more and more put into cause uh, in the context of this crisis. Uh, it might be also global markets. When you see the recent decisions of Mr. Trump regarding the capacities of American pension funds to invest into Chinese stocks, it's not only globalization of trade uh, that may be uh, put into cause by this crisis. Uh, it might be also globalization of financial markets. Um, and on this, Bastien, uh, I would like your uh, opinion. How do you envisage the evolution I would say, of the global trade theory uh, in uh, the context of the crisis. We're still on a trade war, but clearly now it's these are the roots of globalization and global trade that seems to be attacked. Yeah, so definitely I think that uh, this is a nice introduction as uh, this week, uh, Donald Trump has said that uh, the outbreak, uh, the coronavirus outbreak, has shown that uh, globalization was over. Uh, and that's true that uh, this, uh, this idea of trade war is, uh, is definitely uh, behind uh, everything that, uh, that's going on in the market currently. So uh, from uh, 1980 to uh, 2008 uh, and the great financial crisis, there has been a, a, a great expansion of global trade. And since then, since the great financial crisis, there has been a stabilization of global trade as percent of GDP at very high levels. Uh, and uh, this um, this period since uh, 2008 has uh, been uh, labeled uh, globalization. So since uh, the election of uh, Donald Trump in 2016, it became obvious that uh, people in advanced economies were reconsidering the impact of globalization on the lives and uh, the open system of trade that dominated the world economy had already uh, been damaged by the trade war between China uh, and the US. And definitely that's, that's not over. That's uh, with what we uh, could, uh, could have seen in, in the headlines uh, these last few days. Uh, we and when you talk about um, you know global markets, 
uh, a very big uh, question is also will China uh, keep its holding uh, of uh, treasury securities? That's definitely a, a very big question. So now uh, this uh, coronavirus crisis uh, has shown that uh, pe people we, with this crisis, people uh, very suddenly, very abruptly uh, realized that uh, uh, many sectors, including healthcare, rely and possibly over rely on uh, international supply chains, and uh, people maybe discovered that um, uh, masks and uh, ventilators uh, were not produced nationally anymore. But this was not only a question of, uh, uh, of masks and ven ventilators. That's, uh, that's also a question of uh, uh, medicinal uh, drugs. And for instance, 90% uh, of the world production of uh, penicillin is made in China, for instance. And that's 60% for uh, paracetamol. So we see that um, maybe, uh, I mean, the consumers in uh, Western countries are realizing that maybe this is not a good idea to, uh, to rely uh, as much on this uh, internal su international supply chains. And this is why uh, Western countries will not want to... Um, uh, I mean, we want we want to uh, to reshore some activities and some uh, industries back home, and uh, we have seen uh, in the past few weeks that, for instance, Japan has already announced grants for companies established in China uh, wishing to relocate uh, in in Japan. So uh, we ha we had some announcements. That's not official for the time being, but uh, we had some uh, declarations. For instance, from Larry Kudlow. Uh, the economic advisor of Donald Trump saying that uh, uh, the U.S. government could pay uh, the cost of uh, reshoring for the U.S. Uh, companies uh, established in China. So definitely, of course, it will it will depend on uh, political will. Uh, will uh, West, uh, I mean, uh, advanced economies pay for the reshoring of uh, some uh, sectors of uh, some uh, industries? In some uh, in some cases, that's not um, that's uh, easier to say than to to do it. Uh, then you you when you want to reshore some uh, activities, you have to find uh, skilled worker workers. You have to to adapt to adjust your uh, supply chains, your uh, your inputs, and uh, but maybe the sense of history is to have uh, shorter uh, supply chains. Maybe uh, something uh, with a national or with the re-nationalization of uh, some um, uh, productions and one of the market consequences it can have is the fact that um, if uh, if they if there really is uh, this trend of uh, re-nationalization of some uh, activities uh, we will uh, will have higher uh, labor costs for instance and the theme uh, of inflation, this inflation theme, could brought back to life. That's definitely one of the key uh, impact this uh, this trend can have on on the market. The fact that uh, if we relocate some activities, uh, the prices could go up. Thank you very much, uh, Bastien. I think we're coming to to the end of uh, this conversation, and I would like to um, make one final remark. Uh, I think the the true question that we can have. 
when we consider uh, all these rules we were living on and that have been put into cause by the crisis is the following. Is this just a parenthesis? Is this just that these rules have been put on pause before coming back to the state before the crisis? Have we just suspended all the rules we were living on from an economic perspective because of the crisis? And are we going to come back to the previous situation afterwards? I think that this is a very complex and complicated question. My personal perspective is that as the crisis will have very strong consequences because of the accumulation of debts and deficits caused by the answer to the administrative closing uh, of all the economies, by definition, it's not possible to come back exactly to where we were before. It's just, I would say, uh, practically or mathematically uh, impossible. And what this crisis for me is clearly showing is that in the 90s, on the geopolitical perspective, there was this uh, very famous uh, end of history theory of Fukuyama. And in a way, since the 80s, there was a little bit this tendency of there is no alternative or hand of economic theory history because of the cons consensus of Washington. And the COVID crisis, coming back 10 years after the Great Financial Depression, has massively put that into cause. And that we are probably going to live a new moment of economic thinking and economic theory, where, because again of the huge role that states and governments have played because of the crisis, is going to open a new moment where probably the role uh, of public sector, of states, is going to be considered again. Before the crisis, uh, there was this debate on the fact that uh, corporates were considered uh, as now the ones to produce global public goods. And I strongly believe uh, that we're going to come back to a very strong questioning of the respective role on the public and the private sector because of this crisis. Uh, and this is probably something we shall all think about uh, as investors. So, Bastien, thank you very much uh, for this conversation uh, today. We've discussed a number of things, uh, and I'm pretty sure uh, we will uh, continue uh, to dig uh, into each of these complex uh, issues uh, in the future. So, thank you very much. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.